Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Bishop Mark Bartchek of the Diocese of Altoona, Johnstown, giving a talk entitled, The Dialogue of Faith and Reason. Bishop Bartchek's talk was part of the Fidelity and Freedom series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Father Kahn gave a little bit of his own personal background, and maybe I would give you some for myself. First of all, I come from a, a Polish-American Catholic family, and uh, originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm Catholic, and I even hear this expression in the Diocese of Altoona Johnstown in some areas. Why are you Catholic? I'm, we're Catholic because we're Catholic. And I grew up in that environment and that experience. I went to parochial school, Catholic school my whole life. And um, so some things that you know, present a challenge to others just never crossed my mind and in that environment and that experience. Also, I'd like to um, offer this little bit of background in terms of my approach to this topic. And that has to do with um, my background as a canonist. I was the judicial vicar, so I was in charge of the tribunal of the Diocese of Erie for 20 years and a vicar for canonical affairs and rarely had to deal with the area of universities. Gannon University is a diocesan university. The bishop is the chancellor and chair of the board of trustees. And some of the topics that are even under consideration never were on the radar there. Fortunately or unfortunately, by the will of the church, not my own. My specialization um, in the past many years, as Father Khan alluded to, had to do with um, other preoccupations by bishops these days. My specialty has become the criminal or penal law of the church. And because of that, and because of the necessity to specialize in that area, working for and with and collaborating with the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, serving as a judge in that tribunal, and also with the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts, looking at the revision of penal law. Um, I've had to do more homework in that area and have not looked very extensively at the topic of um, universities and the role of the diocesan bishop in that regard. And just as an aside, the last published article I wrote at the request of the Holy See is a commentary on the new legislation for the delict or crime of possession, acquisition, and distribution of child pornography. And it was Father Kahn, who was then editor of Periodica from the Gregorian University, who saw to the publication. And I'm always grateful for Father Kahn's help to do that. So that's a little bit about my background, and I want to share that because I think you'll understand why you might see that my presentation is pretty fundamental. And I pride myself in trying to continue to be a student uh, throughout my life, and I was trained to be a student as much as to be a scholar. Even though I've had some opportunity, as was mentioned, to uh, teach in my area of specialization. I've taught in the summer cycle for the licentiate program at Catholic University of America in Washington in paraprofessional courses, and I've given other lectures. One of my favorite honored places to ever given a lecture is the Catholic University of Lublin, where St. John Paul II was a professor. So I want to thank you, first of all, for the opportunity to be part of this symposium 
um, special focus on the dialogue of faith and reason. And in response to my request for some directions for my participation in this effort, Dr. Sanford gave the following list of relevant questions that speakers would be concerned with in the presentations. And I love questions. He gave these questions for me to ponder a little bit. What is faith? What is reason? Does faith ground reason? Does reason ground faith? Can one exercise one without the other? What happens to faith when divorced from reason? What happens to reason when divorced from faith? What can we learn from the recent history of Catholic higher education and competing ways of understanding the relationship between faith and reason? What role does the apostolic constitution ex corde ecclesiae have in addressing these questions? And I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed listening to the other presentations, bringing these questions to life. And I was asked by Dr. Sanford especially to focus on two questions. The first question is, what is my understanding or interpretation of the relationship between faith and reason in ex corde ecclesiae? And the second question, how does my interpretation or understanding of that relationship offer guidance to me in relationship with the Catholic universities in the Diocese of Altoona Johnstown, where I now serve as bishop. So the first question, what is my understanding or interpretation of the relationship between faith and reason, according to Excordia Ecclesia? And again, I had to dig into this for my own benefit of understanding because it's not an area that um, I would be that well versed. Before I give a positive answer to that question, I'd like to mention that in some of my background reading and preparation for this presentation, I discovered or rediscovered the commonly held view that Sister Wood commented about last evening about there is no easy answer to the question of this relationship. And so I looked at an article in the New Catholic Encyclopedia under the title Faith and Reason, and this is what the authors state. There have been and still are many different ways in which the faith-reason relationship might be conceptualized. Yet in spite of ecclesiastical statements of principle, there is still no generally accepted view as to the manner in which the relationship in question is best explained. And here are the different ways in which the relationship between faith and reason was conceptualized or summarized in that article that was published in 1967. Number one, some held the view that there is no distinction between faith and reason because faith absorbs, dominates, and eliminates the need for reason, as in fideism or traditionalism. Number two, it has been held that reason can totally encompass matters of faith, as in rationalism, scientism, or modernism. Third, it has been held that the distinction between faith and reason is entirely due to the limitations of abstractive thinking, and such a distinction does not express the real state of affairs as in naturalism or supernaturalism. The authors in their fourth observation said, others maintained that a real distinction may be asserted because faith and reason are contrary to each other as two modes of thinking which remain independent in human thought and activity. They also observed that another real distinction was positive, posited whereas either faith or reason provides the human person with firm, adequate knowledge, 
while the other is only a vague approximation. Another view, it has been argued that faith and reason are distinct but interrelated in a highly complex way that each believer and each generation of believers must rethink, reclarify, and reunify in order to understand this complex way in which faith and reason are distinct but interrelated, which they observe suggests it's all relative. And finally, they made the observation that it was noted in this article that faith is further distinguished as intellectual content in which faith is more an assent to truths and to what Christ said versus faith is a way of life that is a commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it was a surprise to me. I went to the major seminary starting in 1977. It was a surprise to me to find no mention in a, an article written in 1967, no mention of the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, at least in Gaudium et Spes, which explicitly mentions faith and reason as two orders of knowledge as expressed in the teaching of the First Vatican Council or where Gaudium Spes talks about the freedom of individual persons to search for and express the truth within the limits of doctrine, morality, and the common good, the valid practice of the arts and sciences according to their own proper methods and principles. Gaudium Spes introduces and, and includes the integral perfection of the human person, the good of the community, and the whole of society in this context the advancement of each person in their knowledge of God, and the need for religious practice to keep pace with scientific knowledge and ever-advancing technology. It was also a disappointment when I was reading that um, survey article in the encyclopedia that the authors in 1967 did not propose their own understanding of the relationship between faith and reason nor did they suggest the pathways for such dialogue. They simply offered what they saw as the state of the question. And to be honest with you, after getting finished reading it, it was not very encouraging to me uh, for that kind of reading. Now, Pope John Paul II recognized that the disparate views about the relationship between faith and reason that were surveyed in that 1967 article were certainly still operated, uh, operative in the final decade of the 20th century. And this is evident in the text of Excordia Ecclesiae and in his encyclical letter, Fides et Ratio, which I will refer to later. And the recognition of a crisis of truth that is the result of the exaltation of technology and science, as well as the continued impact of rationalism, materialism, and unbridled in instinct, to use the words of Pope Benedict XVI, is certainly acknowledged in the early years of this 21st century in the writings of Pope, the Pope Emeritus as well as Pope Francis. And that, uh, quote, a crisis of truth is actually from Pope Benedict's address to Catholic educators at the Catholic University of America in 2006. You can also find some of his discussion of this faith and reason relationship in his often commented upon discourse at the University of Regensburg. And Pope Francis, in the encyclical letter, uh, Lumen Fidei comments on the relationship, and he also touches upon it 
in the joy of the gospel. Where others have seen challenges, problems, or obstacles that discourage them from engaging culture in a conversation that includes both faith and reason, the way I read it, Pope John Paul II, for me, sees privileged, joyful, and life-giving opportunities for dialogue about the things that are most important. In the opening paragraph of the Apostolic Constitution, Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, he states that the privileged task of the Catholic University is to unite existentially by intellectual effort two orders of reality that too frequently tend to be placed in opposition as though they were antithetical, the search for truth and the certainty of already knowing the fount of truth. John Paul II reminds us that this task is constitutive of the mission of a Catholic university. It is a vocation that comes from the heart of the church. He says, quote, it is the honor and responsibility of a Catholic university to consecrate itself without reserve to the cause of truth. So the first principle, principle of the approach set forth by John Paul II is this cause of truth. And he says, the search for truth is a cause that serves the dignity of the human person and it serves the church. John Paul II describes this search for truth as a disinterested service, a service that does not disregard useful or practical knowledge, but engages in a free and impartial search for the whole truth about nature, the human person, and the wisdom that comes from God who is the source and the end of truth. I find it very important that Pope John Paul II underscores what's at risk if this disinterested service is lacking. He mentions especially the potential loss of the fundamental values of freedom, justice, and human dignity. Now these are the issues that I most often hear about when I interact with universities in my diocese. Before I miss this opportunity to mention, and I will comment about the two Catholic universities in my diocese, there are several other universities, including the largest university in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania State University, 45,000 students. And I regularly engage in being present to that university as well. But these issues about the fundamental values of freedom, justice, and human dignity are often issues that I hear in my interaction with students and faculty when I visit universities. And you might be surprised to learn who is more apt to bring them to my attention. I might comment on it later. Remind me if I don't. Having described the role that Catholic teaching has in providing a kind of universal humanism, Pope John Paul II proposes how the relationship between faith and reason is able to be known and its proper meaning expressed through this impartial search for truth. He says the invitation of St. Augustine as well as St. Anselm, think so as to believe and believe so as to understand, applies especially to Catholic universities because they're called to explore courageously the riches of revelation and of nature. Through a reunited endeavor of intelligence and faith, people will be able to come to the full measure of their humanity. 
He says that the full measure refers to their creation in the image and likeness of God, their renewal or redemption in Christ after sin, and their shining forth in the light of the Holy Spirit. In furthering my understanding of the dialogue between faith and reason, according to John Paul II, I've come to appreciate even more the encyclical letter Fides et Ratio, promulgated eight years after Ex Corde Ecclesiae. Now, according to protocol and as an encyclical, Fides et Ratio is addressed to bishops. But the real audience for that document are university professors, scholars, and researchers. He has in mind not only those who belong to a school or department of theology or religious studies or philosophy in a Catholic university. Because the dialogue of faith and reason is also a dialogue with culture, Pope John Paul II addresses professors, scholars, and researchers of all disciplines within these universities. And as a side note in Excordia Ecclesiae, it's explicit that Pope John Paul II, it's already been mentioned in our conference so far, he also mentions that he, he directs his thoughts on the search for truth of, and dialogue of faith and reason to the many Catholic scholars engaged in teaching and research in non-Catholic universities. He says their task as academics and scientists is to be lived out in the light of the Christian faith and even their presence is a stimulus to the selfless search for truth and for the wisdom that comes from above. I can speak to that from personal experience from the times that I especially visit Penn State University. And there are many Catholic uh, professors and I see them either in the university setting or in the Catholic parishes in State College where the university is located. And it truly is um, edifying to listen to them and their attempts where it is uh, available to them to make known that they are Catholic, even though they're not teaching in a Catholic university. And at the same time, struggling with putting into practice their Catholic faith in that environment. Keeping in mind the purpose of each document, I believe that in order to have a complete understanding of the thought of Pope John Paul II, of the dialogue of faith and reason, the encyclical Fides et Ratio must be consulted along with Ex Corde. Now, a couple of um, times it's already been mentioned, Sister mentioned last night, Cardinal Avery Dulles, and I uh, found a commentary by him on the document Fides et Ratio. I had the privilege of knowing Cardinal Dulles personally when I was a student at Catholic University. He lived right down the hall from me in Caldwell Hall, and um, our conversations were usually Saturday morning because we were both morning persons and we were both vying to get to the um, laundry facilities before anyone else woke up. <laughs> Cardinal Dulles has, had observed in a commentary on Fides et Ratio that John Paul II softened the dualism of reason and faith that was present in earlier church teaching, including Vatican I. Dulles notes that John Paul II does not reject the distinctions between reason and faith or philosophy and theology. He says for John Paul II, there is no competition between faith and reason, and at the same time, he's reluctant to speak of either in isolation from the other. In the encyclical Fides et Ratio, Pope John Paul II offers two images 
of this dialogue between faith and reason. And the most important image is expressed in his description of the relationship between theology and philosophy. And because, as I said, I'm not the expert in this area, I could not put it in better words, so this is going to be a quote from the document. He says, the relationship between theology and philosophy is best construed as a circle. Theology's source and starting point must always be the word of God revealed in history, while its final goal will be an understanding of that word which increases with each passing generation. Yet, since God's word is truth, as in John chapter 17, verse 17, the human search for truth, philosophy, pursued in keeping within its own rules, can only help to understand God's word better. It is not just a question of theological discourse using this or that concept or element of a philosophical construct. What matters most is that the believer's reason use its powers of reflection in the search for truth, which moves from the word of God toward a better understanding of it. It is as if moving between the twin poles of God's word and a better understanding of it. Reason is offered guidance and is warned against paths that would lead it to stray from revealed truth and to stray into, in the end from the path of truth pure and simple. Instead, he says, reason is stirred to explore paths which of itself it would not even have suspected it could take. This circular relationship with the word of God leaves philosophy enriched because reason discovers new and unsuspected horizons. That's the end of the quote. And in, in addition to the circular relationship between faith and reason, Pope John Paul II uses an, uh, another image in the preamble to Fides et Ratio, and this is a quote. Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth, in a word to know himself, so that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves." End quote. As Dulles observes about these images, the implication would seem to be that truth is unobtainable without both faith and reason together. I would say that Pope John Paul II does more than imply the necessity of the dialogue of faith and reason in search for the truth. In Excordia Ecclesiae, John Paul II explains that integration of knowledge is a necessary process, one which will always remain incomplete, especially when there is a rigid compartmentalization of knowledge within individual academic disciplines. He says, and this is a quote, university scholars aided by the specific contributions of philosophy and theology must engage in a constant effort to determine the relative place and meaning of each of the various disciplines within the context of a vision of the human person and the world that is enlightened by the gospel and therefore by a faith in Christ, the Logos, as the center of creation and of human history." End quote. 
For Pope John Paul II, promoting this integration of knowledge is a specific part of a Catholic university's task of promoting dialogue between faith and reason. So it can be seen more profoundly how faith and reason bear harmonious witness to the unity of all truth. For me, what a rich and complementary and integral view John Paul II has in mind when he speaks of the relationship between faith and reason. Unlike the dreadful exposition of that relationship presented in that 1967 encyclopedia article, John Paul II offers an, invita an invitation to engage in this dialogue. And if we pay attention to his teaching in both Excordia Ecclesiae and Fides et Ratio, it provides us with principles that will make that dialogue meaningful. So I'd like to move to the second question that was posed to me, how does my interpretation or understanding of the relationship between faith and reason according to Excordia Ecclesiae offer guidance to me in relationship with the Catholic universities in the Diocese of Altoona Johnstown? Now I want to preface this by a comment or an observation about my personal history and it's not to be facetious or anything of that nature, but did you know that when, after a, an individual is um, appointed and then ordained and installed as bishop, you go to bishop school? Not before. <laughs> so I went to bishop school in Rome for two weeks after I was ordained. I was ordained in April 2011, and uh, that summer I went to bishop school with 16 other bishops from the United States and bishops from around the world. And this topic was never discussed in bishop school. Just want to uh, mention that. So here's what my response is, at least the beginning of my response, because I think there might be some questions going forward about what guidance um, this offers to me as bishop of the Diocese of Altoona Johnstone. As Father Kahn has um, commented upon the application of Excordia Ecclesiae for Catholic universities in the United States went into effect in 2001. It had been decided that a review of the application would be made 10 years later. So beginning in January of 2011, bishops were to conduct conversations with presidents of Catholic universities in their dioceses as part of the review. I was appointed Bishop of Altoona Johnstown on January 14th, 2011, but I was not ordained and installed until April 19th, 2011. It was a delay because I had to undergo foot surgery, and so by either the grace of God or maybe God's sense of humor, I was ordained a bishop on Tuesday of Holy Week. And Cardinal Regali, Took him about a month to figure it out for the liturgy, it was going to be the liturgy of the day, called me up and said, I'm changing the readings. The gospel text for Tuesday of Holy Week is the betrayal of Judas. <laughs> now you wonder why I commented about purple vestments yesterday. Anyways, I missed the opportunity to be part of that Ex Corte Ecclesiae review that was directed by the conference at that time. And my predecessor, because he was really in the emeritus mode even before my ordination, uh, decided not to engage in that process. 
Now there are two Catholic universities in the Diocese of Altoona Johnstown has, has been mentioned and it's a great privilege to me to interact um, with both of the universities, but I have a great fondness for St. Francis University in Loretto, Pennsylvania, founded in 1847 and sponsored continuously by the Franciscan Friars of the Third Order Regular, province of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus. You probably know the president of St. Francis University is a Franciscan friar, Father Malachi Van Tassel. And the governance of the university is the responsibility of a board of trustees comprised of Franciscan friars of the province, together with lay men and women who comprise the, member, the majority of the membership of that board. And the chairman of the board of St. Francis University is the minister provincial of the Franciscan province. The other Catholic university in our diocese is Mount Aloysius College in Crescent. It was founded in 1853 by the Religious Sisters of Mercy. It's one of 18 Mercy-sponsored colleges and universities in the United States. It remains a member of the Conference for Mercy Higher Education. The president of Mount Aloysius College is Dr. Thomas Foley, a Catholic layperson. And his background prior to becoming president of that college was largely in public service. He held um, uh, chairmanship of commissions in the government of uh, Pennsylvania and worked for the, uh, one of the previous governors of Pennsylvania during his career. The governance of Mount Aloysius College is the responsibility of a board of trustees that is comprised of some religious sisters of mercy with lay men and women comprising the majority of the board membership. The chairman of the board is elected it's currently a non-Catholic lay man, male, who happens to be of the Jewish faith. Even though I did not participate in the 2011 Excordia Ecclesiae review process, I have had frequent contact with the presidents of both Catholic universities and my diocese, and I have made frequent visits to both places for liturgical celebrations and other activities. And I have to say very plainly, first of all, that the then uh, Minister Provincial of the Sacred Heart Province, Father Polishnovsky, was probably one of the first visitors I received in my office within days of my ordination. He was so eager to um, make that connection. At Mount Aloysius College, College, I was invited to give a lecture to the faculty, students, and guests on some aspects of Excordia Ecclesiae as part of a symposium on hospitality that happened a little over two years ago. And I was invited to be the first speaker at the inauguration of the current president of St. Francis University at his request and the request of the current minister provincial, Father Richard Davis. And it was at their request that they wanted me to offer some ideas especially taken from Ex Corde Ecclesiae. I've experienced a rapport with the presidents of both universities that is on par with the positive and engaged relationships that most bishops in the United States reported as a result of the 2011 review of the application of Ex Corde Ecclesiae. And I've begun to experience more substantive dialogue as has been the experience of some bishops at least with presidents in a number of dioceses. Now, obviously much more can and should be done. 
The question is, where do I begin? Both of the Catholic universities under my care offer undergraduate and graduate degrees in the arts and sciences. And they are both equally proud of the success of their students within the respective academic programs. For the undergraduates, it's often seen in terms of their readiness for further study at the graduate level. And for graduate students, it's their readiness for employment in fields that expect that level of study. St. Francis University offers undergraduate degrees in philosophy and religious studies. Mount Aloysius College does not offer undergraduate degrees in those disciplines. It has a core requirement of six credits in philosophy and or religious studies. Neither has a school, a department, or a chair of theology. Because the relationship between faith and reason is about dialogue, I'm intrigued with the idea of a dialogue suggested by Joseph Appleyard, a Jesuit professor emeritus at Boston College. It comes from his idea of a framework for thinking strategically about formation of students. Appleyard suggests that part of the framework should be an idea of the university that genuinely values empirical disciplines and professional models of training and the knowledge they produce, but intentionally places those, con in the, but intentionally places those into conversation with religious accounts of human existence. As I mentioned, the Catholic universities located in the Diocese of Altoona-Johnstown take pride in the results of the empirical disciplines and professional models of training and knowledge that they produce. These institutions are successful in the education of their students within those programs of study. In Excordia Ecclesiae, John Paul II affirms the value of empir empirical disciplines and professional models of training and knowledge, but he cautions that that is insufficient. He says the search for the truth should also be sought through a dialogue between faith and reason. The Catholic intellectual tradition has no difficulty with science when science limits its conclusions to what can be known through an empirical exploration of nature. Now, I agree with Appleyard who argues that the mission of the Catholic University is to create conditions in which Christians, non-Christians, and post-Christians, he says, can engage in conversation about a shared, lasting human good and how to bring it about. This shared, lasting human good has to do with the instinct for human progress, that life matters and the efforts of life are not lost in time or in death. The instinct to articulate and achieve such a shared, lasting human good is found in the Christian experience, faith experience, and it is expressed in numerous cultures and is accessible to everyone independent of their beliefs. Now, I have no doubt that among the students in the Catholic universities as well as the pub public or secular universities in my diocese, the extent of their beliefs may be characterized as perhaps Christian, non-Christian, or post-Christian for some. All the more reason why these Catholic universities in my diocese must and should be effectively fulfill the mission of creating conditions in which students benefit from the dialogue between faith and reason. 
Appleyard believes that this is the first and foremost, this is first and foremost a matter of formation of students. However, in my already um, lived experience, the challenge extends to other key segments of a university community, especially the board of trustees that are responsible for governance and to the professors, those who are in the classroom teaching. The Board of Trustees is a key entity at any university with its responsibility for the financial well-being of the institution and the decisions that must be made in, regarding, uh, in regard to buildings, programs, equipment, and so forth. But it's no longer realistic to expect that the board members individually or collectively can rely on what is often termed a sense of the charism or spirit or tradition of the religious congregation that founded that university. In particular, I think of Mount Aloysius College where there are Sisters of Mercy on the Board of Trustees, but that's basically the extent of their contact now with that college. Not unlike other Catholic universities founded or sponsored by religious orders, the number of Sisters of Mercy at Mount Aloysius continues to diminish there's basically now only two sisters who are, quote, officially retired, but help out with campus ministry and so forth. And so it continues to diminish and there's little prospect of other sisters taking their place. My concern is that without a living presence of the Sisters of Mercy on the college campus, there is a danger of what is referred to at that college as the mercy charism simply being reduced to a concept. There's no embodiment of it in that physical sense by the presence of sisters. Returning to Appleyard's suggestion of a framework for thinking strategically about the formation of students, I can see that other groups could benefit from that kind of formation that he envisions. I'm thinking especially about the president and those in administrative offices and I'm thinking especially about professors who are in the classroom. The idea of the university that genuinely values empirical disciplines and professional models of training and the knowledge they produce would be a great starting point from my perspective to engage the confidence of professors who may be suspicious if this formation would focus on the teachings of the church. I've already had the occasion to hear feedback from professors on the few occasions that I've given public lectures in universities about what's the bishop going to come in and tell us that we have to do. And that certainly wasn't even the purpose of my address. On a small scale, I've already seen this kind of formation taking place when conversation begins with college students sharing accounts of human existence especially human existence that is endangered by any number of ideologies, programs, technologies, or structures that lack a reference to the truth about the human person as found in our Catholic, Catholic tradition. In Excorde Ecclesiae, John Paul II reminds us that when the limits and deficiencies of empirical disciplines that are applied without reference to what is transcendent, transcendent the thirst for truth which is inscribed in the heart of the human person is exposed. He says that's where a university, and especially a Catholic university, has to be a living union 
of individual organisms dedicated to the search of truth. As an aside, I'll go back to what I said earlier. Who is more apt to bring these concerns to my attention? It comes from the students. And regularly, when I visit the colleges, the Catholic universities as well as the non-Catholic universities in my diocese, young people always, every single chance I have to have conversation with them, explain in different language or vocabulary, they want the truth, and they want the whole truth, whether it's in the Catholic university or not. John Paul II reminds us that in this kind of dialogue and search for the truth, that's where the contributions of philosophy and theology aid in providing a synthesis of knowledge that makes up for the shortcomings of compartmentalized knowledge within individual academic disciplines. Limited and fragmented views of the human person, John Paul II says, can be replaced with a vision of the human person and the world that is enlightened by the gospel and therefore by a faith in Christ, the Logos, as the center of creation and of human history. I also want to mention my renewed appreciation for the service that a Catholic university should provide to the church and the community. It is stated explicitly in Excordia Ecclesiae, quote, through teaching and research, a Catholic university offers an indispensable contribution to the church. In fact, it prepares men and women who inspired by Christian principles and help to live their Christian vocation in a mature and responsible manner, will be able to assume positions of responsibility in the church. Now, in a practical way, one area of service which involves positions of responsibility in my diocese is that of Catholic school teachers and administrators. A large number of elementary and secondary teachers and principals in Catholic schools in the Diocese of Altoona Johnstown have studied here at Franciscan, and they've received their undergraduate and graduate studies at St. Francis University and Mount Aloysius College in our diocese. Programs of study at those universities lead to academic degrees and professional certification, especially according to standards that are um, mandated by the state and expected by our diocese. More important, though, is that these teachers and school administrators are responsible for handing down the Catholic faith to the next generation. And that's such a vital thing today because more and more, and I think it's appropriate and I, I, I welcome, greatly welcome, the presence of young men and women who are pursuing the vocation of teacher in an elementary or secondary school. But the kind of presumed witness to the faith and the, the difference even between the time I was in school, where there was only two lay teachers in the Catholic grade school that I attended, had 800 students. The rest were all sisters of St. Joseph. So the, ex, the, ex, the effectiveness of the, uh, the Catholic teaching of these teachers and school administrators in my diocese, in my view, is really dependent upon this dialogue of faith and reason that should occur in their university education. Before I finish, I would like to offer some observations about just two norms, general norms, that are 
found in part, of, in part two of Ex Gordia Ecclesiae. I've been doing my best to look at this from the role of diocesan bishop, but I am a canon lawyer, so I have to look at norms at least this much. Under Article 2, and Father Kahn um, already described the difference of the types of norms, some are prescriptive and some are more informative, but under the Article 2, the title, The Nature of a Catholic University, I would look, like to look at paragraph 5, which states, a Catholic university possesses the autonomy necessary to develop its distinctive identity and pursue its proper mission. Freedom in research and teaching is recognized and respected according to the principles and methods of each individual discipline, so long as the rights of the individual and of the, of the community are preserved within the confines of the truth and the common good. In an article on leadership in Catholic education, James Heft briefly touches on the issue of academic freedom, freedom under the title, The Challenge of Relating to the Hierarchy. Like many authors, he underscored the anger, anxiety, and consternation for many theologians at Catholic universities that came with the insistence of the required mandatum. Without going into any explanation in that article, Heft states, and this is a quote, although Excordia Ecclesiae supports academic freedom properly understood, precisely what that proper understanding is remains a matter of debate among theologians and bishops. And then without explanation, he adds, if the local bishop often assumes an adversarial position the recruitment of faculty becomes more difficult. Now, without intending to sound adversarial, I've been in a court of law a couple times in my life. I was actually trained in um, arbitration and, and conciliation. Without intending to sound adversarial, adversarial, I think that in fairness, it needs to be said Catholic universities will have less difficulty in the recruitment of faculty, provided that all interested parties understand that the job description calls for applicants, as Father Kahn mentioned, who wish to exercise their role as researcher, scholar, and teacher in a manner consistent with the principles set forth by John Paul II in Ex Gordia Ecclesiae. The most important principle in that regard is that academic freedom properly understood is situated within the relationship between faith and reason, a relationship that is expressly considered a dialogue of such nature that there will be a lively reflection and discussion on the meaning of things in the light of truth that is revealed by God. As a result of my study and reflection in the context of preparing for this symposium, I have a more positive view about the opportunities to provide for academic freedom so that all who teach and learn in a Catholic university will benefit from the highest level of scholarship in the Catholic intellectual tradition, whether in the fields of philosophy, theology, the arts, or sciences. As a closing comment on the topic of academic freedom, Heft poses an important question. He asks, how should university presidents protect the necessary academic freedom of theologians 
while at the same time maintaining a cordial relationship with the local bishop? It's an important question, but I think it could be worded better. This is how I would pose the question. How should university presidents and bishops protect the necessary academic freedom of theologians while at the same time maintaining a cordial relationship? I think this formula works better because it is in my job description as a diocesan bishop to safeguard and promote the good of Catholic universities, including those who establish them, direct them, teach in them, and learn in them. And I would cite for your benefit, and that's from the directory for the pastoral ministry of bishops published in 2004, and some of the headings in that document remind me of these. The principle of truth, the principle of communion, the principle of cooperation, the principle of respecting the competence of others, the principle of the right person for the right job, and the principle of justice and legality. So then the second norm that I would like to look at briefly is under Article 5. The title is The Catholic University Within the Church. And I'd like to look at, in particular at number three, which states, Periodically, each Catholic university to which Article 3, Numbers 1 and 2 refers is to communicate relevant information about the university and its activities to the competent ecclesiastical authority. According to this norm and the norm of Canon 810 that Father Kahn spoke about, and as Bishop of Altoona Johnstown, I would be the competent authority for St. Francis University and Mount Aloysius College. That authority in regard to this norm in Excordia Ecclesiae should not raise concern about potential adversarial relationships as suggested previously in regard to academic freedom. What I think is significant about this norm is that it highlights the importance and even necessity of communication between the Catholic University and the diocesan bishop. In many instances, problems that arise can be exacerbated through neglect. And it can happen that the neglect is unintentional. The value underlying this norm is to facilitate proactive communication between the Catholic University and the bishop. I have no need or desire to know everything that goes on in both of the universities in my diocese. However, sometimes there is a major initiative, an important address, a distinguished guest, a commemoration of an anniversary, an award to a student or faculty member that would be worth bringing to my attention because not only would people want to bring it to my attention out of trepidation that I might raise an objection, I think it goes a long way for the bishop of the diocese to offer a letter of commendation on those occasions, and I've been happy to do that. And sometimes there are problems which can and should be resolved under the jurisdiction of those responsible for the governance of the university at the level of the president and administration or the board of trustees within their respective competence. I often joke that because we're a small diocese, uh, only 74 parishes, 100,000 Catholics, people find out ways to communicate with me over a variety of questions that they have, including why is the same food served at cafeteria every day of the week? 
I mean, seriously, I get those kind of mundane things. In the end, the norm is about communication and sharing of information with the possibility that the substance of the information may require some action or response. Communication, sharing of, of information, and especially posing questions are all essential to dialogue. This symposium has been about the dialogue of faith and reason, which is the most important dialogue for Catholic universities. And dialogue makes for good relationships and partnerships. Among the highlights of my study and reflection on the questions posed to me in view of this apostolic constitution is the realization of the importance of the relationship between faith and reason that should always be directed toward the truth and guided by the truth. So I'd like to close with an observation made by Pope Benedict XVI at the Angelus in 2007 on the Feast of St. Thomas Aquinas. Actually, in that uh, observation, he asks a really excellent question. Pope Benedict said, quote, when Christian faith is authentic, it does not diminish freedom and human reason. So why should faith and reason fear one another if the best way for them to express themselves is by meeting and entering into dialogue? He goes on to say, faith presumes reason and perfects it. And reason, enlightened by faith, finds the strength to rise to knowledge of God and spiritual realities. Human reason loses nothing by opening itself to the, con to the content of faith, which indeed requires its free and conscious adherence. I certainly didn't realize it at the time, and um, I may date myself a little bit. I was born in the 1950s. Didn't realize it at the time, but I began to learn this kind of truth when I was seven years old. And our teacher would ask, who made me? And we would respond, God made me. And the teacher would ask the second question, why did God make me? And we would be able to respond, God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him in the next. I had to do the Baltimore Catechism three ways, parochial school, and in preparation for penance and Holy Eucharist with all the other kids besides, even though I went to parochial school and at home with my parents because they made sure that we went over it again. But what I did not know at that time, and I have gradually learned and continued to learn from further dialogue as an even more important truth, that God knows me and knows you that God loves me and loves you, and that God humbled himself to serve me and you in this world, especially by the passion and death of his son, Jesus Christ, so that I and you, all of us, can truly be happy in the next. Thank you. Thank you, JJ, and thank you very much to Bishop Barczyk. I really appreciated his comments. Uh, I should start to, you know, I just realized I've been in, in school most of my life, like many of you out there, and uh, when I think back, I've been in univer university a good part of my life since I was maybe, what, 18, 19 years old, except for a year off where I worked at something else. So this has been my life. And I, I like to say uh, I'm very ecumenical. Uh, I was taught in grammar school by the Sisters of Mercy. I went to a Jesuit high school. 
I went to a, a, a college run by the Holy Cross Fathers, a graduate school run by the Brazilian Fathers, and I was hired at a Franciscan University where my department chair for a number of years was a Dominican priest, and also my daughter is a Dominican sister. So I, I say, I'm very ecumenical. I have a broad range of experience, but the, a serious point on this is in a sense that as I speak today, my worldview has been so much formed by you know, the Catholic vision. And, and, and I've benefited from all of these influences of the different orders and, and, and streams and charisms within the Catholic Church, and I value them all. And, and I think this is a, a wonderful blessing that I've had to have expo been exposed to these, this range of Catholic education. Well, Bishop Archibald, again, I thank you very much for your reflections. Um, the first part of your talk dealt with um, the relationship of faith and reason, and, and uh, especially uh, ex corde ecclesiae and um, fetus et ratio. Of course, fetus et ratio, it, I think, is, is so important. As, I, as uh, uh, JJ just mentioned, you know, in my book, Legacy of John Paul II, I explore all the encyclicals, but fetus et ratio, of course, is very is central for our understanding of a Catholic university, as, as we've heard today from the bishop. So I don't, I don't really want to, uh, um, I, 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 it did strike me a couple of quotes from, um, from this. There's one quote from fetus et ratio, where the Holy Father says, from all that I have said to this point, it emerges that men and women are on a journey of discovery, which is humanly unstoppable, a search for the truth and a search for a person to whom they might entrust themselves. Christian faith comes to meet them, offering the concrete possibility of reaching the goal which they seek. And he says, in Jesus Christ, who is the truth, faith recognizes the ultimate appeal to humanity, an appeal made in order that what, we, that what we experience as desire and nostalgia may come to its fulfillment. This truth which God reveals to us in Jesus Christ is not opposed to the truths which philosophy perceives. On the contrary, the two modes of knowledge lead to truth in all its fullness. Of course, we have that beautiful image that the bishop quoted of in this sort of the, 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 the highlight of the truth, uh, faith and reason being the two wings by which we ascend to the knowledge of, of God and of truth. And so I, I think that this is the Catholic vision for, um, that we're all seeking to pursue, and, and it's articulated so beautifully by the Holy Father. In the encyclical, it's interesting that uh, in the second chapter, it's um, the second chapter of Fetus et Ratio is uh, faith-seeking understanding, the, the, um, and the, the next chapter is understanding seeking faith. And he, he really talks about how, um, how reason, uh, reason actually is necessary for the perfection of faith. Um, and then in chapter four, he talks finally about the relationship of faith and reason. And in the following chapter, of course, he, he talks about maybe one of the more controversial issues. It's entitled, uh, The Magisterium's Intervention in Philosophical Matters. And in this is the case where uh, St. John Paul is trying to show why it's been necessary for the magisterium at some points to intervene in academic matters, intellectual matters, because uh, of the responsibility of the magisterium to defend the truth. And if Catholic uh, scholars, theologians are, are, are possibly going off the track, 
the magisterium does have a responsibility uh, toward this. I thought I would just stop and talk a little bit about my own, um, some of the things that I have um, experienced here at Franciscan University that may shed, might shed some light on this. First of all, um, one of the things that um, the bishop said in the beginning of his talk is that um, John Paul pointed out in Ex Corde that, that sometimes two things are seen as antithetical and tend to be placed in opposition, which really aren't. He says the search for truth and the certainty of already knowing the fount of truth. And of course, we know the fount of truth is Jesus Christ himself, the Logos, the way, the truth, and the life. And I think it's essential that this be at the heart of a Catholic university, as the bishop says, because only that knowledge, only the truth of Christ, only Christ himself leads us to salvation. Reason can be a light that along the path, but the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is really the, the longing, the, 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 the fruition of what all people are really searching for, the fullness of truth. So a Christian university, a Catholic university, must be dedicated to proclaiming the fullness of truth that we found in the fount of truth, Jesus Christ. I know I even came to the university because when I first met um, our former president, uh, Father Michael Scanlon, when I was, a, actually I was an undergrad student, uh, he was just in the process of uh, he discerning whether he would accept the presidency of this college. And I had a little um, chance meeting with him. And he said, I'm inclined to take this position, but only if the trustees know that I, the central requirement is that I be allowed to do everything in my power to make Jesus Christ the Lord of every aspect of the campus. And when he said that to me, I said, this is where I would want to teach, at a university like this, with Christ at the center. And we know that a Catholic university founded on the truth of Christ must integrate this in every aspect of its life. It has to be proclaimed from the pulpits on campus. It must be taught in the classrooms, of course, especially particularly in the theology classroom. It must be lived in the dormitories and in every aspect of the university's life. Uh, the bishop referred to um, uh, uh, Dr. Appleby, who is talking about the formation of students being a central strategic concern of every university. I think that this is essential for every Catholic university, even though it might be done in many different ways. The strategic question is, how can the students at this university, as a Catholic university, encounter Christ in all aspects of the university's life? I think that's part of our commitment. And of course, we ask the question, um, where do we find the fullness of this truth of Christ and about God? Of course, we as Catholics realize uh, we, we have the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation of Vatican II, which tells us that our, the, the fullness of truth about Christ is found in sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and that being communicated, guarded, and proclaimed by the magisterium of the church. And of course, this is where the magisterial authority comes in, that uh, the magisterium there is simply to ensure that the university in, in, in its teaching, uh, especially in religious matters, would be faithful in proclaiming the fullness of the truth of Christ. Now, he mentioned that um, one of my men who got a doctorate from my same school, Father James Heft, uh, we got our doctorates about the same time. He was, he was commenting at the end of his talk about this adversarial 
position of relationship that sometimes is perceived between the magisterium and uh, professors at a university. And of course, we know that this has been true. It's been, in many places, viewed as an adversarial um, position. And for example, possibly in Fetus et Ratio, you know, the chapter on where sometimes the magisterium has been rightfully called to intervene in certain matters where the truth of the gospel, the truth of Catholic teaching was being uh, openly questioned. Now, um, so this has been one of the causes of this suspicion and this adversarial relation. Again, to talk about my experience at Franciscan University, and of course I'm not saying this because it's normative, but because it's what I know. I remember in the 1980s, um, the faculty had a very vigorous discussion here in the early 80s about uh, academic freedom and the meaning of that at a Catholic university. And we formulated and we agreed unanimously on a phrasing for our mission statement. And basically it was a phrase used that we believed in responsible academic freedom. And by this we understood, first of all, academic freedom is that we are free to explore anything and everything. We can raise questions, critical questions. This is what a university does using the light of reason. There's nothing that's sort of off limits to discuss and to explore, at least if it's an academically, intellectually uh, viable topic. And so the faculty was fully on board with that and saw this as being fully Catholic as it is. We're not afraid of diversity on campus. In other words, the Catholic Church is diverse. It's multicultural. It's, it embraces all nations, languages, and cultures. So it's not as if a Catholic university in no way could be narrow. In its, um, in its concerns and its addressing things. And yet we added that word responsible academic freedom. And from, from that we were tr trying to say that we have a responsibility toward the truth of the gospel. And we have a responsibility as a Catholic university toward what the Catholic Church formally teaches. And we're free in the field of theology and philosophy to explore the meaning of this, which is not always uniform and uh, universally agreed upon. But uh, we were saying academic freedom is not some sort of an independent right that is detached from our responsibility to be truly Catholic. Now, many of you out there already know this about this university, but it is not to be taken for granted. And, and as a result of this, when the theology department, you know, when, when we were presented later with the mandatum and the uh, oath of fidelity, uh, we as a theology department approached the bishop and said, we want to make a public affirmation of our commitment to be Catholic, to teach what the church teaches when this is a matter of, of, of doctrine, and that we want the bishop to know that we are publicly avowing that this is what we stand for. And, and of course, our bishop at that time, Albert Ottenweller, now deceased, you know, readily accepted this. Now, this is, I think, the model, I would say, of what it should be like, not that we're the only place where it's perfect, but it should be, we were not under operating under sort of a hermeneutic of suspicion, that we're afraid that the magisterium is going to squelch uh, authentic academic freedom, but rather we're going to, to live it out. So I think that, um, I think that this is something that, um, and, and we saw again that as we know in church teaching, the magisterium is there to protect and, and articulate the truth. I would like to, um, like to talk now 
just for just a couple of minutes about what I see as some of the um, challenges of the formation of students. And I'm speaking on a topic he brought up from Dr. Appleby. I th he used a phrase, Appleby said, that the, the university has to think, think strategically about the formation of students. And um, we as a university, for example, we talked about the importance um, also in the academic field of different fields. We, we here, I think, have uh, we have graduate programs in education, theology, philosophy, business, counseling, nursing. Maybe I've missed one. We have like 34 different or more academic majors. And so in that sense, even though we're a small school, um, I think that we're trying to represent uh, the, the, the breadth of, of Catholic education. And one of the things that has been, I think, very important for me as a source has been the Second Vatican Council. And I think the bishop alluded, uh, alluded to this. Um, I, uh, next week I'm giving a, a paper at University of St. Thomas on Gaudium et Spes. They're having a conference on Gaudium et Spes. And I really do think that one of the landmarks that, of course, John Pope, or St. John Paul was one of the authors of uh, Gaudium et Spes um, as a bishop at the council, and there, there are things here that I believe that if they were instilled into our you know, approach to formation of students and our Catholic understanding, they're just foundational. Uh, I, obviously, I'm just making a few comments here, but there's a section in Gaudium et Spes, Article 36, which is entitled, The Rightful Autonomy of Earthly Affairs. And basically what it says is there are laws governing different sciences that are laws that are, are autonomous, that, you know, laws of, of physics or chemistry, natural laws of science. There are laws, in a sense, that govern the social sciences, methods. And that at a Catholic university, we're not trying to produce Catholic physics, meaning we've discovered some new fundamental principles of how to do physics that are sometimes baptized as being Catholic. So there is, in this, a recognition of this rightful autonomy of earthly affairs, uh, which is described. Um, he says, and yet this autonomy, it says, however, if by the term autonomy of earthly affairs is meant the, that material being does not depend on God and that man can use it as if he had no relation to the creator, then the falsity of such a claim will be obvious to anyone who believes in God, for without a creator there can be no creature. So we have to understand this rightly. Yes, there's an autonomy of earthly affairs, but we also recognize that all things are dependent on God. Um, a little later in, in Article 41, um, there's beautiful sections about uh, man's search for, for meaning, the human person's search for meaning, and basically saying that the church is encouraging um, this, this search. And in fact, the presence of the church will recall these different problems, these issues. Um, one thing, just to go back to fetus at ratio, is one of the things John Paul pointed out as a problem about philosophy today, and maybe our philosophers here could, could confirm this, is that sometimes in the field of philosophy, uh, philosophy has become detached from the great philosophical questions, the questions, the fundamental questions of meaning and being. It becomes sort of language analysis. And what the Holy Father said in fetus at ratio is, that it is the mission of the Catholic University and of intellectual life of Catholics to restore uh, the true meaning of philosophy is asking, asking these fundamental questions. 
And, and I know in our core curriculum, you know, we, we require our students to take courses in metaphysics, ethics, and philosophy of the human person, because these courses in particular raise those fundamental questions about, about being and the meaning of the human person. And so my point here is that in documents such as Gaudium et Spes, we do have clear direction about the integration of faith and unit of reason and how it is to be done properly. Um, it's sometimes interesting to me when people get the idea that this encyclical or this um, constitution, Gaudium et Spes, is somehow doesn't teach doctrine. And you look at the beginning of it, and it talks about, uh, it basically gives a Christian anthropology that the human person is created in the image of God, yet he's fallen, but in original sin, uh, even the evil one is, part, is responsible for partly for this fall. And it basically gives a very Christian um, Catholic understanding of anthropology, which is at the basis of the whole letter, the dignity of the human person. I know I'm going along a little long, but I'd like to close with one one thing that I would like to respond, in, in Bishop Barczyk's, um, toward the end of his talk, he was, ta he was mentioning that, you know, that he as a bishop does not need to know, you know, all the details of what is going on within uh, a Catholic university, you know, the, the nuts and bolts. He certainly doesn't need to know what they're serving in the cafeteria and be concerned with that. But um, I think that a question that I would say that a bishop can rightly ask, and this is, I'm humbly presenting this as, as, as something to think about, a proposition, is the question to a university, how you, are you, as a university, promoting this dialogue between faith and reason? How concretely and specifically are you, are you and, and the answer might vary quite a bit, uh, uh, concerning what a Catholic university might be doing to foster this integration of faith and reason. But I would also go one step further. Pope Francis, um, well, let me start before Pope Francis. One of the documents of Vatican II, and I teach Vatican II, I've taught it since the early 80s. I'm teaching it over in Gaming in the fall to undergraduates. Um, one of the things that Gaudium et Spe, or, uh, the, the Constitution on the laity says that the role of the laity in the church, and most of our students here are lay students, and most students at universities are, are not clerics or religious, and says the mission of the laity in the view of the church is first evangelization and sanctification of the world, proclaiming the good news of Christ by word and deed. The second thing it says is transformation or renewal of the temporal order that we're to instill into the world gospel values. Uh, that's a mission of the laity. And thirdly, charitable works and social aid that we're called to do works of mercy and charity. These are, this is the mission of lay people. Now, the question would be, how at a Catholic university do we, for example, that second point, promote the renewal of the temporal order? How do we instill into the areas of our society a truly Catholic Christian vision? And I think the question is, um, how can the magisterium, the bishops, and the and university professors, board of trustees, come together with a vision of how their particular university can promote these values? And I think it must be said now, not to be overly defensive, but the fact is we know that many of these values are Christian values, Catholic values, are seriously under attack in our culture. And I think this is where our challenge as a university is to form students with the intellectual capacity 
to answer the questions that are being raised by society. I could give, you know, you're familiar with the, the examples of this. When we look at um, biology, you know, we have a course here on human embryology, forming our students to understand that the, how do we scientifically show this idea of human life begins at conception. A, a sound biology will do this. How in the area of the social sciences can we argue that that according to God's plan and, and the, the nature of the human person, that marriage is a union of a man and a woman. How in the area, and in addition to the psychological background to that, the structuring of society, how in political science could we argue that a, a healthy society would be based on the family and uh, the, the family of a man and a woman, the children and extended family, we see this in Gaudium et Spes in part two. It's the first chapter of the sanctity of marriage and the family. We have to have the intellectual tools to prevent, present our students that we're not just teaching this because it's a doctrine, it is, but that it really flows from the very nature of the person and we study these things. In the area of the media, you know, we know ISIS is using YouTube to recruit people. Why, at a university of Catholics, how do we uh, we create people with media savvy to be present the an army of love, the gospel of Christ in the media. These are the challenges that, of course, uniquely a Catholic university uh, takes on integrating faith and reason. Uh, one other example that's very controversial, my, my college roommate at Notre Dame ended up uh, going for a doctorate in psychology, and he spent most of his career as a psychologist and clinical counselor uh, dealing with people with same-sex attraction. And he's been a researcher in a group called NARTH, and he's basically showing that, you know, that people who have unwanted same-sex attraction should can be freed by Jesus Christ and by therapy to uh, be freed from this, that they don't have to identify themselves by their sexual orientation, but to identify themselves as human, Christian, Catholic, whatever, and that that there is a way that uh, our faith can be integrated with sound psychology. So this is the challenge, and I, I, the last word is Pope John, uh, Pope Francis says in uh, Guardian of uh, Joy of the Gospel, he says that the call today for the church is to make missionary disciples, not just missionaries or not just disciples of Christ, but missionary disciples. Um, my vision of the Catholic University, which I think really is what Bishop Parchek is promoting, is that uh, a, a university has a strategy, strategic plan for forming its students so that they will have an identity of themselves at a Catholic university as how am I going to be formed here to become a missionary disciple in all of the fields of study in which they are engaged. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.